Section 19 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 3 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 39 The Ionian Islands. When Lord Ellenborough abruptly resigned the place of President of the Board of Control, he was succeeded by Lord Stanley, who, as we have seen already, became Secretary of State for India under the new system of government. Lord Stanley had been secretary for the colonies, and in this office he was succeeded by Sir Edward Bulwer-Lytton. For some time previously, Sir Edward Lytton had been taking so marked a place in parliamentary life as to make it evident that when his party came into power, he was sure to have a chance of distinguishing himself in office. Bulwer's political career had up to this time been little better than a failure he started in public life as a radical and a friend of o'connell he was indeed the means of introducing mr disraeli to the leader of the irish party he began his parliamentary career before the reform bill he was elected for st ives in eighteen thirty one after the passing of the bill he represented lincoln for several years at the general election of eighteen forty one he lost his seat and it was not until July 1852 that he was again returned to Parliament. This time he came in as a member for the county of Hertz. In the interval, many things had happened, to quote the expression of Mr. Disraeli in 1874. Lytton had succeeded to wealth and to landed estates, and he had almost altogether changed his political opinions. From a poetic radical, he had become a poetic conservative. In the parliamentary companion for the year 1855, we find him thus quaintly described, by his own hand it may be assumed, concurs in the general policy of Lord Derby, would readjust the income tax and mitigate the duties on malt, tea, and soap, some years ago advocated the ballot, but seeing its utter inefficiency in France and America, can no longer support that theory will support education on a religious basis and vote for a repeal of the Maynooth Grant. It will perhaps be assumed from this confession of faith that Lytton had not very clear views of any kind as to practical politics. It probably seemed a graceful and poetic thing, redolent of youth and earnest maltrevers, to stand forth as an impassioned radical in early years, and it was quite in keeping with the progress of Ernest Maltravers to tone down into a thoughtful conservative, opposing the Maynooth Grant and mitigating the duty on malt and soap, as one advanced in years, wealth, and gravity. At all events, it was certain that whatever Lytton attempted he would in the end carry to some considerable success. His first years in the House of Commons had come to nothing. When he lost his seat, most people fancied that he had accepted defeat and had turned his back on parliamentary life forever. But Lytton possessed a marvellously strong will and had a faith in himself which almost amounted to genius. When he wrote a play which proved a distinct failure, some of the leading critics assured him that he had no dramatic turn at all. He believed on the contrary that he had, and he determined to write another play which should be of all things dramatic and which should hold the stage. He went to work and produced The Lady of Lyon, 
a play filled with turgid passages and preposterous situations but which has nevertheless in so conspicuous a degree the dramatic or theatric qualities that it has always held the stage and has never been wholly extinguished by any change of fashion or of fancy in much the same way sir edward lytton seems to have made up his mind that he would compel the world to confess him capable of playing the part of a politician we have in a former chapter of this work alluded to the physical difficulties which stood in the way of his success as a parliamentary speaker and in spite of which he accomplished his success he was deaf and his articulation was so defective that those who heard him speak in public for the first time often found themselves unable to understand him such difficulties would assuredly have scared any ordinary man out of the parliamentary arena forever but lytton seems to have determined that he would make a figure in parliament he set himself to public speaking as coolly as if he were a man like gladstone or bright whom nature had marked out for such a competition by her physical gifts he became a decided and even in a certain sense a great success he could not strike into a debate actually going on his defects of hearing shut him off from such a performance and no man who is not a debater will ever hold a really high position in the house of commons but he could review a previous night's arguments in a speech abounding in splendid phrases and brilliant illustrations he could pass for an orator he actually did pass for an orator mr disraeli seems to have admired his speaking with a genuine and certainly a disinterested admiration for he described it as though it were exactly the kind of eloquence in which he would gladly have himself excelled if he could in fact lytton reached the same relative level in parliamentary debate that he had reached in fiction and the drama he contrived to appear as if he ought to rank among the best of the craftsmen sir edward lytton as secretary for the colonies seemed resolved to prove by active and original work that he could be a practical colonial statesman as well as a novelist a playwright and a parliamentary orator he founded the colony of british columbia which at first was to comprise all such territories within the queen's dominions as are bounded to the south by the frontier of the united states of america to the east by the main chain of the rocky mountains to the north by simpson's river and the finley branch of the peace river and to the west by the pacific ocean it was originally intended that the colony should not include vancouver's island but her majesty was allowed on receiving an address from the two houses of the legislature of vancouver's island to annex that island to british columbia vancouver's island was in fact incorporated with british columbia in eighteen sixty six and british columbia was united with the dominion of canada in eighteen seventy one something however more strictly akin to sir edward lytton's personal tastes was found in the mission to which he invited mr gladstone there had long been dissatisfaction and even disturbance in the ionian islands these seven islands were constituted a sort of republic or commonwealth by the treaty of vienna but they were consigned to the protectorate of great britain which had the right of maintaining garrisons in them great britain used to appoint a lord high commissioner who was generally a military man 
and whose office combined the duties of commander-in-chief with those of civil governor the little republic had a senate of six members and a legislative assembly of forty members it seems almost a waste of words to say that the islanders were not content with british government for good or ill the hellenes wherever they are found are sure to be filled with an impassioned longing for hellenic independence the people of the ionian islands were eager to be allowed to enter into one system with the kingdom of greece it was idle to try to amuse them by telling them they constituted an independent republic and were actually governing themselves a duller people than the greeks of the islands could not be deluded into the idea that they were a self-governing people while they saw themselves presided over by an english lord high commissioner who was also the commander-in-chief of a goodly british army garrisoned in their midst they saw that the lord high commissioner had a way of dismissing the republican parliament whenever he and they could not get on together they knew that if they ventured to resist his orders english soldiers would make short work of their effort at self-assertion they might therefore well be excused if they failed to see much of the independent republic in such a system it is certain that they got a great deal of material benefit from the presence of the energetic road-making british power but they wanted to be above all things greek their national principles and aspirations their personal vanities their truly greek restlessness and craving for novelty all combined to make them impatient of that foreign protectorate which was really foreign government the popular constitution which had been given to the sept insular republic some ten years before sir e b lytton's time had enabled hellenic agitation to make its voice and its claims more effectual in england after the usual fashion a great many shallow politicians were raising an outcry against the popular constitution as if it were the cause of all the confusion because it enabled discontent to make its voice heard they condemned it as the cause of the discontent they would have been for silencing the alarm bell immediately and then telling themselves that all was safe as was but natural local politicians rose to popularity in the islands in proportion as they were loud in their denunciation of foreign rule and in their demands for union with the kingdom of greece anybody might surely have foretold all this years before it might have been taken for granted that so long as any sort of independent greek kingdom held its head above the waters the greek populations everywhere would sympathize with its efforts and long to join their destiny with it many english public men however were merely angry with these pestilential greeks who did not know what was good for them a great english journal complained with a simple egotism that was positively touching that in spite of all argument the national assembly the municipalities and the press of the ionian islands had now concentrated their pretensions on the project of a union with the kingdom of greece sir edward bulwer lytton had not been long enough in office to have become soaked in the ideas of routine he did not regard the unanimous opinions of the insular legislature municipalities and press as evidence merely of the unutterable stupidity or the incurable ingratitude and wickedness of the ionian populations he thought the causes of the complaints and the dissatisfaction were well worth looking into 
and he resolved on sending a statesman of distinction out to the islands to make the inquiry mr gladstone had been for some years out of office he had been acting as an independent supporter of lord palmerston's government it occurred to sir edward bulwer lytton that mr gladstone was the man best fitted to conduct the inquiry he was well known to be a sympathizer with the struggles and the hopes of the greeks generally and it seemed to the new colonial secretary that the mere fact of such a man having been appointed would make it clear to the islanders that the inquiry was about to be conducted in no hostile spirit he offered therefore to mr gladstone the office of lord high commissioner extraordinary to the ionian islands and mr gladstone accepted the offer and its duties the appointment created much surprise some anger and a good deal of ridicule here at home there seemed to certain minds to be something novel startling and positively unseemly in such a proceeding sir edward bulwer lytton had alluded in his dispatch to mr gladstone's homeric scholarship and this was in the opinion of some politicians an outrage upon all the principles and proprieties of routine this it was muttered is what comes of literary men in office a writer of novels is leader of the house of commons and he has another writer of novels at his side as colonial secretary and between them they can think of nothing better than to send a man out to the ionian islands to listen to the trash of greek demagogues merely because he happens to be fond of reading homer mr gladstone went out to the ionian islands and arrived in corfu in the november of eighteen fifty eight he called together the senate and endeavoured to satisfy them as to the real nature of his mission he explained that he had not come there to discuss the propriety of maintaining the english protectorate but only to inquire into the manner in which the just claims of the ionian islands might be secured by means of that protectorate mr gladstone's visit however was not a successful enterprise for those who desired that the protectorate should be perpetual and that the ionians should be brought to accept it as inevitable the population of the islands persisted in regarding him not as the commissioner of a conservative english government but as gladstone the philhellene he was received wherever he went with the honours due to a liberator his path everywhere was made to seem like a triumphal progress in vain he repeated his assurances that he came to reconcile the islands to the protectorate and not to deliver them from it the popular instinct insisted on regarding him as at least the precursor of their union to the kingdom of greece the national assembly passed a formal resolution declaring for union with greece all that mr gladstone's persuasions could do was to induce them to appoint a committee and draw up a memorial to be presented in proper form to the protecting powers by this time the news of mr gladstone's reception in the islands and in athens to which also he paid a visit had reached england and the most extravagant exaggerations were put into circulation mr gladstone was attacked in an absurd manner he was accused not merely of having encouraged the pretensions of the ionian islanders but even talked of as if he and he alone had been their inspiration one might have imagined that there was something portentous and even unnatural in a population of hellenic race feeling anxious to be united with a greek kingdom 
instead of being ruled by a British protectorate imposed by the arbitrary decree of a Congress of Foreign Powers. National complacency could hardly push sensible men to greater foolishness than it did when it set half England wondering and raging over the impertinence of a Greek population who preferred union with a Greek kingdom to dependence upon an English protectorate. English writers and speakers went on habitually as if the conduct of the islanders were on a par with that of some graceless daughter who forsakes her father's house for the companionship of strangers, or of some still more guilty wife who deserts her loving husband to associate herself with some strolling musician. There can be no doubt that in every material sense the people of the islands were much better governed under England's protectorate than they could be for generations, probably for centuries to come, under any Greek administration. They had admirable means of communication by land and sea, splendid harbours, regular lines of steamers, excellent roads everywhere, while the people of the Kingdom of Greece were hardly better off for all these advantages under Otto than they might have been under Cadres. Monsieur Edmond Abou declared that the inhabitants of the Ionian Islands were richer, happier, and a hundred times better governed than the subjects of King Otto. Monsieur Abou detested Greece and all about it, but his testimony thus far is that of the most enthusiastic Philhellene. Indeed, it seems a waste of words to say that where Englishmen ruled, they would take care to have good roads and efficient lines of steamers. But Monsieur Abou was mistaken in assuming that the populations of the islands were happier under British rule than they would have been under that of a Greek kingdom. Such a remark only showed a want of the dramatic sympathy which understands the feelings of others, and which we especially look for in a writer of any sort of fiction. Monsieur Abou would not have been so successful a romancist if he had always acted on the assumption that people are made happy by the material conditions which, in the opinion of other people, ought to confer happiness. He would not, we may presume, admit that the people of Alsace and Lorraine are happier under the Germans than they were under the French, even though it were to be proved beyond dispute that the Germans made better roads and managed more satisfactorily the lines of railway. The populations of the islands persevered in the belief that they understood better what made them happy than Monsieur Abou could do. The visit of Mr. Gladstone, whatever purpose it may have been intended to fulfill, had the effect of making them agitate more strenuously than ever for annexation to the kingdom of Greece. Their wish, however, was not to be granted yet. A new Lord High Commissioner was sent out after Mr. Gladstone's return, doubtless with instructions to satisfy what was supposed to be public opinion at home by a little additional stringency in maintaining the connection between Great Britain and the protected populations. Still, however, the idea held ground that sooner or later Great Britain would give up the charge of the islands. A few years after, an opportunity occurred for making the cession. The Greeks got rid quietly of their heavy German King Otto, and on the advice chiefly of England, they elected as sovereign a brother of the Princess of Wales. The Greeks themselves were not very eager for any other experiment in the matter of royalty. They seemed as if they thought they had had enough of it. But the great powers, and more especially England, 
pressed upon them that they could never be really respectable if they went without a king and they submitted to the dictates of conventionality they first asked for prince alfred of england now duke of edinburgh but the arrangements of european diplomacy did not allow of a prince of any of the great reigning houses being set over greece in any case nothing can be less likely than that an english prince would have accepted such a responsibility the french government made some significant remark to the effect that if it were possible for any of the great powers to allow one of their princes to accept the greek crown france had a prince disengaged who she thought might have at least as good a claim as another this was understood to be prince napoleon son of jerome king of westphalia a prince of whom a good deal was heard after as a good deal had been heard before in the politics of europe the suggestion then about the prince of the house of denmark was made either by or to the greeks and it was accepted the second son of the king of denmark was made king of greece and lord john russell on behalf of the english government then handed over to the kingdom of greece the islands of which great britain had had so long to bear the unwilling charge and the retention of which according to some uneasy politicians was absolutely necessary alike to the national safety and the imperial glory of england this is anticipating by a few years the movement of time but the effects of mr gladstone's visit so distinctly foreshadowed the inevitable result that it is not worth while dividing into two parts this little chapter of our history mr gladstone's visit the mistaken interpretation put upon it by the islanders and the reception which chiefly on account of that mistake he had among them must have made it clear to every intelligent person in england that this country could not long continue to force her protectorate upon a reluctant population over whom it could not even claim the right of conquest it ought to have been plain to all the world that england could not long consent with any regard for her own professions and principles to play the part of europe's jailer or man in possession the cession of the ionian islands marked however the farthest point of progress attained for many years in that liberal principle of foreign policy which recognizes fairness and justice as motives of action more imperative than national vanity or the imperial pride of extended possession england had to suffer for some time under the influence of a reaction which the cession of the islands all just and prudent though it was unquestionably helped to bring about end of section nineteen